Today, Billy is going to start a sermon series on Leviticus, and he'll be preaching three homilies on three different passages, including the very beginning of Leviticus and a couple of passages from Genesis and Exodus that provide context for the book of Leviticus. This is Genesis 3, 1 through 13, and 21 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And now 21 through 24. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the, tree, guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. There's a question I want to ask you as we begin this morning. How many of you have seen the movie How to Train Your Dragon? Uh, it's a pretty popular movie. Lots of good. Lots of you have seen this movie. It's a great story about a young boy, Hiccup Horrendous Haddock III, and his quest to create a culture of peace between the Vikings and the dragons so that they can live together and have a flourishing culture, a flourishing society, so that they can, as a team, stand up to villains and create a sense of peace. It's a story about Hiccup growing in leadership. If you haven't seen it, it is well worth your watching. But let me ask you this. How many of you have read the books How to Train Your Dragon? The movie is fun, but the books 
are absolutely incredible. It's an epic 12-part masterpiece about becoming a hero the hard way. It's about learning how to overcome incredible odds, make challenging decisions, and more importantly than that, how to forgive, how to show grace to your enemies. It's a beautiful picture of the, the bittersweet victory of sacrificial service and redemption. Again, the, the movies are fun, the books are fantastic. I recently saw something on the internet where someone said this, had this advice for parents. Uh, the, the advice was, don't let your kids grow up thinking that how to train your dragon is just a movie. The books are, are too good to overlook. If you've only seen the movies, then you're really missing out. Changing the subject, how many of you have skimmed Leviticus? Uh, many of us use a Bible reading plan uh, throughout the year, so I'm assuming that at some point in time, Leviticus has come up in your readings. If you don't have a Bible reading plan that regularly puts you in the Old Testament, then I'm sure that you have at least encountered Leviticus as you're reading the New Testament. You come across some phrases that Jesus has, and you maybe go back and see the original context, or... You hear someone on the news or someone in pop culture referencing Leviticus often, most often, as a way to show how supposedly barbaric the Old Testament was. If you've encountered Leviticus before, what was your first impression? For, for most people, it's just a bunch of laws. It's a bunch of rules, a bunch of thou shalt nots. You may have found it boring. You may have found it irrelevant. You may have even found it ugly or unsettling. But let me ask you this. How many of you have studied Leviticus? Like, really studied it. Dug deep down into Leviticus with a hunger to learn and love God's law. Just like we heard last week from Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. That would have included Leviticus. Apparently, there is a huge difference between skimming Leviticus and studying Leviticus. And the more that I have studied Leviticus, the more I resonate with that statement about how to train your dragon. Parents, don't let your kids grow up thinking that how to train your dragon is just a movie. And don't let your kids grow up thinking that Leviticus is just a bunch of rules. If you've only skimmed Leviticus, then you're really missing out. Leviticus is urgent. Leviticus is relevant. It answers the most pressing question in our lives. How can we, as a sinful, unholy people, enjoy the presence of our most holy God? That's the question that marks the entirety of our human existence. The primary problem of humanity is that we cannot enjoy God's presence anymore because of our sin. Of course, it wasn't always this way. In the beginning, things were good. Everything was good. Humanity dwelled with God in the Garden of Eden. We enjoyed God's presence. But in Genesis 3, the problems began. Adam and Eve trusted the lies of the serpent instead of the word of God. They gave in to temptation, and they rebelled against the laws of God, and the consequence was loss. 
profound loss. Verse 8, they, were, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God. The, the phrase, the presence of God, literally means the face of God. They, they saw God, they heard God, and they experienced their sin and their shame, and they thought, I don't want God to see me. I can't look at God like this. I, I need to hide in fear from the God that I once enjoyed, this cool of the, the garden together. They, they're hiding from the face of the Lord. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. Verse 24, he drove out the man. That's the language of, of a, a vigorous expulsion. They were, they were pushed out from the presence of God. And Adam and Eve wouldn't have wanted to go. The, the presence of God is life and joy and light. Being in God's presence is, is paradise. It's the most pleasurable experience that we could possibly have, and we have lost it. Because of our sin, we cannot enjoy God's presence, and that has plagued humanity ever since. Our deepest longing is to get back to what we have lost. It's everywhere you look, from the way that we vote, to the way that we shop, to the way that we strive for meaning and power and significance and pleasure. Every single one of these actions, all of our lives are, are driven by this living, breathing prayer. Get me back to the garden. Get me back to God. That is our main problem, and we cannot overcome it. Our fig leaves don't actually cover our sin and our shame. Our works are completely inadequate. If there is a solution to our problem, it will not come from us. But thankfully, as Steve has already brought out for us this morning, thankfully, this passage shows the hints that God will intervene. God calls he calls out to us, verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That phrase, the Lord God calls, it's, it's relatively rare in the Old Testament. It only happens at a couple of points in time where there's some, something significant that's going on. It's an authoritative summons from the Most High God, but it's also an act of mercy. God doesn't want Adam and Eve to stay hidden the Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner says, in order to help him, God must first draw him out of hiding. God calls, and then God covers. God covers. Walter Brueggemann writes, God does for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They cannot deal with their shame, but God can and does. Verse 21, God replaces their deficient fig leaves with clothing that's made for them out of animal skins, a hint that redemption is going to come through the sacrifice of innocent life. And so as we prepare our hearts for Leviticus, the drama of Leviticus begins here. It begins in loss. In, in our sin, we cannot enjoy God's presence. We have lost our intimacy with our creator, but God desires reconciliation. 
God desires redemption through his calling and through his covering, God shows us that he will make a way. Our second scripture passage preceding our second homily is from Exodus 19, 1 through 20. This is found on pages 60 and 61 in the Bibles in your pews. The third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Well, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses repeated the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a dark cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and they also believe you for, may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words to the people of words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been close to a nuclear power plant? Some of our friends 
used to live within eyesight of a nuclear power plant. And whenever I drove by, I loved to pause and, and just stare at it. It was in the Midwest, so the land was very flat. There was lots of open farmland. And it, so the only thing on the horizon that you would see would just be these two huge concrete towers jutting up from the ground. And, and from the towers, this this steam just issuing forth perpetually up into the air. So there's always a, a cloud hanging over these, uh, these nuclear reactors, even on a, a completely clear day. Uh, and, and so just imagine what that would be like. Again, th this is, uh, it's, it's flat land. Wherever ever you can see, just maybe some trees and some houses, then all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this uh, flatness, this huge a nuclear reactor in the midst of the community. You just had to stop when you're driving by and say, wow. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing picture of power. It was providing power for countless homes, countless businesses. Uh, but it's also a little ominous. When, when you're in the shadow of a nuclear power plant, you know that if something bad happens, then you're really in trouble. And that's why there were signs on every single road that you would drive on saying, this way to the nuclear evacuation route. They wanted you to know how to get out if something bad was going on. So even though it's a powerful presence, you also know that it's a present danger. And that's the situation facing the Israelites in Exodus 19. A holy God has just moved into the community, has descended on the mountain in their midst, and we have to just stop and say, wow. This moment has been culminating since Genesis 3. God has been working to reverse the effects of the fall. He's been working out this great story of redemption. He's chosen his people, the family of Abraham. He's chosen his place, the promised land. Kids, if you've been reading the big picture story Bible, this probably sounds familiar to you. This is the story of redemption, right? It's God's people dwelling with God in God's place. But there's a problem at the beginning of Exodus. God's people are not in the promised land. They're in Egypt. They're in slavery. They are not free to be God's people living in God's place. And so God moves. He frees the people from their slavery with the strength of his mighty arm. He brings them out and brings them to Mount Sinai. He's ready to make his home with them. And at first it sounds amazing. Can you imagine the splendor and power of having the living God right next door to you after years, generations of humiliating slavery it's, it's amazing, it's awesome, but just like the power plant in the neighborhood, it's a little ominous. We come again to our most pressing question, the most pressing question in all of human life. How can we, a sinful, unholy people, enjoy the presence of our most holy God? Exodus 19 shows us that there are some hurdles to this. You have to be careful. Verse 12, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You have to be clean. Verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed their garments. Why? 
Because a holy God is not to be trifled with. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So the people are trembling. The mountain is trembling. And at this point in time, it seems like God's presence is more of a threat than a comfort. We can easily imagine all of the people kind of nervously shuffling around, looking at each other and wondering, is, is this what we wanted? Is this what we thought was going to happen? But even in the midst of present danger, there is grace. Just like in Genesis 3, God calls. Verse 3 the Lord called to him. He called exactly the same phrase, exactly the same words as we heard in Genesis 3. God called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. God summons Moses and gives him an amazing message of redemption, this great news of salvation to give to the people. The Lord has heard their cries. He has remembered his covenant promises. They are his people. He has brought them out of Egypt to bring them to himself. And the instructions that follow are just a living consequence of this amazing context of grace and mercy. And then God calls Moses to come even closer. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses. Again, same word. He called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Just like Genesis 3, God is pursuing his people. He is summoning them into his presence. He's drawing them near to himself. Likewise, God provides for them. A sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so God says, make sure that you're clean. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. This instruction shows God's heart of mercy. He desires to be with his people. He wanted them to be in his presence. He wanted them to be able to show up and not be consumed by his holiness. And so it's another sign of grace. Be consecrated. Be ready so that you can be close to me. Just like Genesis 3, sin prevents us from enjoying God's presence, but God is determined to overcome our sin. He calls his people near And he offers them cleansing. But the journey back to God is not yet complete. The story doesn't end here. Exodus began with one problem. The people were in slavery. But it ends with another problem. Now the people are freed from slavery. But their sins are not yet fully dealt with. The consecration that we see in Exodus 19. It's it's not fully It's not fully cleansed their sin. The problem of sin is not yet dealt with. And so listen to how the book of Exodus 
ends. Now God is near them. They've built the tabernacle. The presence of God has now come on the tabernacle. And here's some of the last verses in the book of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter. He was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You hear that phrase, he wasn't able to enter, and you hear it again, it's loss. It's, It's distance. We still are not back to enjoying the presence of our beloved. And for that, we need the good news of Leviticus. Our final scripture reading for the morning in preparation for our final homily is from Leviticus 1, verses 1 and 2. This is found on page 81 in the Bibles in your pews. Leviticus 1, verses 1 and 2. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This is the word of the Lord. So now that we have heard the spiritual and emotional backdrop of Leviticus, I think we're ready to experience this wonderful book as God intended. It's a gracious pathway back into his presence. When you think about all that the Israelites have experienced up to this point, you can understand their anticipation and their apprehension. They knew the story well. They knew about Genesis 3. They knew the fall. They knew the loss, the expulsion from God's presence. They feel it in their bones. And they long for healing, for redemption. They long to enjoy God's presence. And they've seen salvation happen. They've they've seen hope alive, God bringing them out of slavery. They experience God's saving grace, but there's still a barrier. There's still distance. That's the tension that we get to when we start at Leviticus 1, and we know this tension all too well. How many times have you uh, been conflicted when you come to church on Sundays? Maybe it's been a tough week. And as you're getting ready for church on Sunday, your conscience just starts hammering you with all of the things that you have done wrong. Or maybe there's been a lot of suffering in your life, and so you, you start to wonder, as you, maybe you're walking here or driving here, what's the point? Your, your shame, your guilt, tells you not to draw near, that God's going to be very displeased with you. And your doubt tells you that God doesn't care. He's happy to help other people, but somehow he won't be helping you. And yet there's hope. There's this hope within us. There's this sense within you that God wants you to be here. That he has something for you, a gift of grace, a gift of mercy. There is something that is drawing us to church week in, week out, in spite of our failures, in spite of our disappointments. And so our hearts are torn by these two senses, aren't they? Apprehension and anticipation. We want to be near God, 
But what is he going to say to us? Here's what he's going to say to us. We hear it in Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called Moses. We've heard that word called a few times already this morning, haven't we? It's a, a, a wonderful golden thread that links together Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Adam hid in shame, but God called him. The people have come out of their slavery in Egypt. They don't have a good sense of their identity, who they are. God calls to them. He called his people, called Moses to come near so that he could tell him words of life. And then after the glory cloud descended, Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle. But again, God called. Wherever there is a barrier to, to the Lord because of sin and shame, God calls. He, he calls out to his people, and he calls, in our text, from the tent of meeting. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. What a wonderful name for God's palace. That was what the tabernacle was. The temple was going to be. It's the throne room of the heavenly king. But God calls it a tent of meeting because he wants to commune with his people already. In the, verse, the first verse of this book, verse 1, we see that Leviticus is aimed at the core problem. It's aimed at solving the one thing that we need in our humanity, our distance from God. God calls. God speaks. He gives to us his word. Verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. We're going to hear that phrase a lot over the next many months as we go through this book. About 37 times in Leviticus, God says to Moses, speak thus. Say this to the people of Israel. God is constantly telling Moses exactly what to tell the people. One scholar did the math and found out that about 85% of Leviticus is direct speech from God to his people. The scholar Roy Gain says that Leviticus contains more direct speech by God himself than any other book of the Bible. This is literally God's word, and God's word is transformative. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. God's word transcends the gap. God's word brings us back. Leviticus is God's word breaking the ice between him and us. And what is this word about? Verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. What is this word about? It's about sacrifice. Sacrifice. Remember the lesson that we learned in Genesis 3, redemption comes through the sacrifice of innocent life. So this is God's word to a sinful people. Here's how. 
Here's how to have your sins cleansed so that you can come back into God's presence, enjoying his presence once again. And note, who gets to make these sacrifices? The text says, God says, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, that's, that's any one of you, man or woman, rich or poor, and as we see through the scriptures, it includes even Jew or Gentile, anyone. The first sacrifice that we'll hear about next week, the burnt offering, we see all kinds of people making burnt offerings in the Old Testament, anyone. It has a a global cosmic reach. God is making a way for anyone to enjoy him. How can sinful humans enjoy the presence of their holy God? Leviticus answers through God's ordained sacrificial offering, through the blood of atonement. And it works. God's sacrificial system works. These sacrifices enable Moses to enter into God's presence. Leviticus starts like this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. But the next book in the Bible, the book of Numbers, it begins like this. Numbers 1.1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Isn't that amazing? Leviticus begins with Moses outside of the tent of meeting. Numbers begins with Moses inside the tent of meeting with God. God's way works, friends. Through the cleansing atonement of God's sacrifices, Moses can now enter into the tent of meeting, and we can too. We can enjoy the presence of God. If the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament was sufficient for God's people to enjoy God's presence again, how much more so can we enjoy God's presence now since we come to God through Christ? Jesus Christ is the final, ultimate sacrifice for sin. He brings us back to God. John 1, 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, for Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. And most, most powerfully, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Friends, he has made a way. And so don't think that Leviticus is just a bunch of rules. It is so much more to that. It is the solution to our most pressing human problem, the answer to our greatest need and question. In Leviticus, God is saying to his people, to his church, to you, come back. Come back into my presence through the blood of the lamb, through the atoning sacrifice through Christ our Lord. And so the invitation is for you. Come to him. Come to God now in Christ and enjoy his mercy. Enjoy his joy. Enjoy his presence 
He has made a way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story of redemption and the fantastic news, this, uh, this, this news that, that makes us uh, almost want to say, is it, is it true? Is it true? Can it be that you've made a way for us to enjoy you again? We thank you for the finished work of Christ on our behalf and that centuries ago you were laying the foundation for us to understand his atoning work on the cross. And so we pray now that you would give us faith, that you would help us to enjoy your presence because we can now enter the holy places through Christ's blood. Give us the gift of being able to hear your call on our lives. Give us the opportunity to sense your presence near to us in moments of doubt and trial and temptation. Be gracious to us. Be kind to us. And now as we approach your table, feed us, O oh God. We, we praise you for your wondrous grace and ask that you would confirm in us that grace today. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our mediator and our savior. Amen.